You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Last week, if you were here and got to hear from Tim Snow, uh, he shared a story about his experience at Side by Side Winter Weekend, which is obviously near and dear to my heart, Side by Side. Uh, Winter Weekend is a weekend retreat that we run for families. We invite about 20 families who have a child with cancer and just try to create a restful and fun experience for all of them. Uh, it's really fun for the families. It's also really fun for the volunteers. A few years ago, one of our volunteers, a guy named Andy, um, Andy's this kind of really cool, he's, you know, rides a motorcycle and wears leather and fixes boats and builds boats for a living. And it's just this like pretty tough, cool guy. Uh, he was matched as a buddy to a three-year-old who had a brain tumor. And Andy is not someone who spent a great deal of time with toddlers or preschoolers. Uh, so we gave him some coaching and he was fantastic all weekend long with this kid. They made kind of a really cute and sweet little pair. Uh, and at one point in the program, someone was making balloon animals. So they thought, that sounds like fun. They got in line. Andy said, so what kind of balloon animal do you want? And his camper had a little bit of a speech impediment due to some of his treatment. So he said, a bird and Ford. And Andy said, a bird and a sword? Okay, great. We can do that. And the camper kind of looked at him more insistently and said, a bird and a sword. And Andy was like, great. That sounds simple. Two things is fine. You know, we'll make that happen. So they wait in line and Andy starts to notice that the kid is kind of getting a little whiny, that he's not like in a happy place. And he keeps going, a bird and a sword, a bird and a sword. And so they finally get to the front of the line and Andy goes, this kid needs a bird and a sword stat. You know, we've got to make this happen. So he gets the bird and he gets the sword and he kind of takes them and just sort of shrugs and kind of slumps away. And Andy follows him and he is not sure what to say. This kid is not getting better. He's getting worse. He's really sad. And Andy is at a loss. So Andy pulls in another volunteer uh, to see if she could help. So this young woman sits down with this kid and says, you know what's wrong? And the kid says, well, I didn't like the balloon that I got it. And she said, well, what did you want? And he said, a bird and sword. And she said, a brontosaurus? And he said, yes! <laughs> so God bless Andy, doing his best to make this kid's dreams come true, not really able to deliver what he was hoping for. Um, I think that that is a really hilarious story because how many of us have been there? How many of us have been in a place where we have been asking for something and we just can't seem to get it? Uh, even asking something of God that we just can't seem to get, Right? You feel like you couldn't have been more clear, but for whatever reason, it's just not coming the way that you thought it would. Well, today we are going to finish our series on the book of Job. Uh, I'm kind of talking about the last few chapters, so I'm not going to read a big chunk all at once. But if you want to open your Bibles to Job chapter 38 and just kind of have that in front of you today, that's on page 420 of those Pew Bibles. Uh, we're going to be talking about kind of how this story kind of comes together at the end. Job is certainly someone who knows what it's like when you don't get something that you really, really want, right? In the face of his great suffering, all that Job wanted was answers. He wanted to understand why. And maybe some of you here can relate to that. Perhaps you are longing for something that has not materialized, Perhaps you've lost something really important to you. Perhaps you might be feeling let down and you're wondering why. Well, I love the story of Job because it's a story about how God shows up in those painful spaces. It's a story about how even if God doesn't always give us what we want, what we ask for, God makes sure that we always get exactly what we need. 
So a quick recap of the story of Job. Job is this super rich and well-respected man. He's described as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. When I think of Job, I kind of get this picture of like the guy that you see in his Christmas card photo, you know, silver-haired and super tan, kind of a statesman type who's married to his lovely wife, and they have their 10 beautiful children and a big pile of grandchildren, and, you know, they're all standing on some perfectly manicured lawn in front of some palatial house, and you know, he could be like a ex-senator or a retired investment banker or something like that. And there's lots of like really sparkly smiles and, you know, even all of the little kids are poised and perfectly smiling at the camera. You know the family that I'm talking about? And you look at them and you kind of like roll your eyes because honestly, whose family looks like that? But then the thing is that you know this guy, you know, you're getting his Christmas card and you know that in addition to just looking so perfect, he also is actually like a really nice guy. He's really talented and smart and humble and kind and, you know, all of that kind of makes you roll your eyes even more because honestly, where does it end, right? (laughs) That is what I think about when I think of Job, that... He's actually like a really great, genuine, kind of straight and narrow, letter of the law, pretty successful guy. I bet that Job is not the kind of guy who's jaywalking. I I bet that Job probably returns all of his library books on time. You know what I mean? We're told that Job would even offer sacrifices on behalf of each and every one of his ten children on the day after their big parties, just to make sure that they were covered in the incident that they may have sinned. So he was covering his bases, everything was in order, everything looked pretty good. And then Satan enters the picture. And Satan suggests to God, what if Job is only righteous because his life is super duper easy? What if Job only claims to have faith in God because 100 times out of 100, all of his needs, all of his desires have been perfectly met? So Satan makes a bet with God that Job will certainly lose his faith and curse God if everything Job has is destroyed. So God agrees to allow this, and sure enough, Job's whole world falls apart. All of his livestock, all the people who cared for him, all of his very sons and daughters, everything is stripped away. Even Job's physical body was reduced to festering sores. Now, over the last few weeks, we've heard about Job's lament, his friends who dog Job with bad advice and judgment, their attacks on Job. They're suggesting that certainly his suffering was due to some unexamined sin in his life. But Job insists that this cannot be true. And Job cries out to God over and over again for answers. But all he seems to get is nonsense from his friends and what feels like silence from God. It's a pretty lonely place to be. In his suffering, Job wants to understand why, but he doesn't get what he wants. Because he gets something better. Because just when it seems Job has come to the very end of his rope, lo and behold, that is when God shows up. God appears in a whirlwind with all kinds of things to say to Job. So today, I want to spend some time unpacking this exchange between God and Job and see how it might be instructive for us. To me, this exchange raises two really big, important questions that we can wrestle with, uh, especially in times when we find ourselves seeking God in experiences of suffering. So here's the first question that this passage raises. The first question is, do we have open ears? When we seek God in times of suffering, are we really taking on the posture of listeners? 
You may have noticed that up to this point in the book of Job, there have been a lot of words spoken about God. Job and his friends theologize and pontificate and they argue and discuss and they try to make this rational sense of Job's mysterious suffering. And you got to remember, Job is our letter of the law kind of guy, right? So he is perhaps the most desperate of them all for things to just make sense. Even if the suffering doesn't go away, Job, Job wants it to at least feel familiar or reasonable or understanding, understandable, excuse me. And the truth is that I think if we're honest, we tend to do the same thing. Lots of words. We have a lot to say about God because it turns out we're smart people, right? We're Presbyterians. We value scholarship and education. We research and we start committees and we attend lectures. We read about God. We talk about God all in an effort to make sense of God, to fit God into a framework that we can comprehend and stake our lives on. And that is actually really good and important work. And it's a little bit ironic because sometimes we get lost in a sea of our own words and we forget the importance of simply listening. In chapter 23, Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and listen to this. I would fill my mouth with arguments. That was Job's thought of what a productive and helpful conversation would look like with God face to face. He would literally fill his mouth with all of his words of argument. And that's why when God shows up, God asks Job, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. It's almost as if God is saying, why do you keep talking and talking as if your limited human words can make sense of my eternal glory and wisdom? It's not about you and all the things that you think that you know about me. It's about me and everything that I actually am. Can't you see that all your words eventually start to drag down the wondrous and indescribable glory of my ways? Don't you know that I have something so much bigger, so much better for you than just a collection of words? Throughout the biblical narrative, we see story after story like this, where God reaches out to engage people in relationship, because that is what God does. God reaches out to the people of Israel, and he guides them from captivity. He serves as their personal guide, making a way for them through the desert. God reaches out again in the person of Jesus, taking on our very flesh and sharing in our human experience of suffering. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that even after he's gone, God will continue to reach out again and again and again through the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, Jesus says, The Spirit will guide you into all the truth and declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, God's primary concern has always been to make himself known to his people, personally, directly. Certainly we can find pathways to God through things like scripture, through books and study and tradition, even through friends and mentors and community. But so frequently we put all of our trust in those things and we forget what God does over and over and over again. God comes to us. God offers us direct access. God makes himself present and speaks directly to us in our specific and tender and vulnerable experiences of suffering and sorrow. You know, I remember when I started seminary, I was so eager to know more of God through my studies, to discover a deeper sense of who God was and how God operates in the world. And a good friend of mine remembered, uh, reminded me of something that Karl Barth once said. 
He said, in the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And then through theologians, the flesh became words again. (laughs) So the question, do we have open ears? When we seek God in the midst of suffering, do we believe God actually wants to reach out and connect and be present with us? Do we believe God has something personal and tender to say just to us? Or do we fill the space with our own words? Do we speak our concerns and requests and Christian cliches and then just say amen like we're leaving some sort of voicemail for God? God has so much more for us. Let those who have ears hear. Here's the second question this passage raises. Do we have open minds? As we draw near to God, do we have the capacity to let God come to us on God's own terms? Now, as I read and reread these chapters when God comes to address Job, I can't help but laugh at part of it because I just picture Job. He's here, you know, very rigidly demanding this reasonable explanation for his suffering. It's like he's filed a complaint and he's waiting for his letter of response from God. But basically, God says, listen, gird your loins, buddy, because you want to know what I feel like talking about? I feel like talking about the weather and unusual animals. So let me just give you a sampling of what God has to say to Job. God asks in chapter 38, verse 8, who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? This is from the message. That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and I tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose. And I said, stay there. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. Verse 28, God asks, Who do you think is the father of the rain and the dew, the mother of the ice and the frost? Verse 34, can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? Do you hear the intimacy of the language that God's using? God's describing some of the most powerful and wild forces of nature, but he's speaking about them with the same love and gentle tenderness of a proud parent. God continues to speak, moving his focus from weather to animals. He describes his nurturing care for the lions, the ravens, the mountain goats, and the deer. He asks Job to consider the power of the wild ox, the beauty and cruelty of the ostrich, the might of the horse, the majesty of the hawk and eagle. God asks, whose hand has brought forth these creatures in all of their majesty? And then God pauses, and he asks Job for a response. Look at this magnificent world I hold in my hands. What do you have to say to me now, Mr. Mouthful of Arguments? And finally, finally, Job is silenced. He says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I I lay my hand on my mouth. So now that Job is ready to listen, now that God has opened Job's ears, God reveals even more to Job, opening his mind. God still offers no reasonable explanation for Job's suffering. Instead, God asks more questions, engaging with Job's imagination. God describes the behemoth and the leviathan. That's two different mythical creatures whose scholars have related to a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Both animals would have conjured up all kinds of fantastical stories and of powerful and untamed creatures that would have been fearsome and caused much trembling if people heard about them. And you start to wonder, what in the world is God doing, right? It's like, here's Job who's asked for a brontosaurus, and God shows up with a bird and a sword. Job's like, what am I going to do with all of this? But God is not confused. 
God has not misunderstood. Years ago, when I was a recent college graduate and working at SPU, I remember hearing a lecture from the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And the thing that stood out to me the most was his insistence that we have lost a sense of spiritual imagination. He said that we're not sufficiently amazed by God like we could be because we lack the creativity to imagine a possibility of God beyond our reason. He talked about the importance of art and music and creative expression, all of these things that stretch beyond just propositions and rules and taxonomies as ways that we might discover the wonder and the mystery of God. And that idea of spiritual imagination lodged itself in my brain. And I'm so glad that did, because little did I know at that point in my life how much I would need a well-cultivated spiritual imagination later on down the road. Years later, my wife and I ran into our own experience of suffering, a season when God's ways did not make sense. I've shared here in the past that we ran into all kinds of difficulties trying to become pregnant. It's a long story that I don't need to retell today. Happy to tell it to anyone who wants to hear. Uh, but suffice it to say that neither one of our two children came to us quickly or easily. And that means that we've spent almost half of our 11 years of marriage trying unsuccessfully to become pregnant. And those, all those months, those years, they were an experience of wondering the same question as Job. Why this suffering? Why us? What have we done to deserve this? God, are you listening? Are you even there? A few years into the struggle, Lisa and I took a class about listening prayer, and the instructor talked to us about how we typically come to God as if we're holding a list in our hand, kind of our top 10 list of concerns and things that we're wondering that we want to present to God. It's our list of the problems that need solutions, the requests that we want God to grant, all of the questions that need answers. And the instructor challenged us to use our imaginations to consider instead... What if God has his very own top 10 list of things for us? And what if the number one thing on our list is not the same thing at all as the number one thing on God's list for us? In this class, they encouraged us that God has created us with these incredible minds and imaginations, and perhaps God wants to use those imaginations as the canvas to paint these beautiful pictures for us about his love and his truth you know, we do spend so much time when, when it comes to listening to God. We try to clear our mind and quiet our soul so that we can hear this really cloud, clear, booming voice of God. But they were saying, what if God wants to use our wild and crazy imaginations, all the random things that pop into our minds, like, I don't know, a hippopotamus or a crocodile, and use those things to communicate something to us about his love and his care for us. So little by little, we started to learn what it meant to use our imagination to ask God to speak to us about our lives, about his list for us. And the more that we learned to listen to God, to simply dwell in the extravagant mercy of God's personal presence with us, the more we recognized all the good gifts he wanted to give us along the way. Gifts that eventually built us into much more prepared parents when our time came. Now, of course, it's not that God doesn't care about the number one thing on our list. God cares about all of those things and even more. It simply means that God can see much more clearly than we can what we need the most. It means that God knew that Job wasn't going to be helped by some reasonable outline giving all of the reasons for why he was suffering. God knew what Job really needed. And Job really needed to know that God was with him, that God was nearby. 
So God painted a picture of the majesty and grandeur of creation. God invited Job to use his imagination to imagine and to wonder. If God is loving enough to care for the wind and the sea as a tender mother, perhaps God can care for me in my storm. If God's powerful enough to create and subdue all of creation, including the great behemoth and the terrifying Leviathan, perhaps God is powerful enough to manage my chaos and pain. If God is asking me questions, maybe God really wants to know me. And maybe God really wants to be known. And so in response to all these wondrous and mysterious pictures that God paints in Job's imagination, Job stands in awe. He says, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. I babbled about things far beyond me. I made small talk about wonders way over my head. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you, but now I've heard it firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. I will never do that again. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay or crumbs of rumors. Job asked for understanding. Instead, he got intimacy. Job's ears and mind were open to God, allowing Job to imagine a greater, more mysterious, and more wonderful possibility of God's presence and purpose in his life. And Job was forever changed. So what became of Job? Well, first God used Job to declare forgiveness over his terrible friends. And then Job's whole life was restored. And sure, he got all of his stuff back and then some. But more importantly, I see one little clue that Job's life was forever changed by this encounter with God. We're told that Job has 10 more children, seven sons and three daughters, and that Job decides to share his inheritance with all of them, the sons and the daughters. Now, that would have been unheard of in those days. It was always the sons who received the the inheritance and not the daughters. And I don't want to make more of this than I should, but it's the kind of little detail that just makes me wonder if maybe Job came out of this experience with a greater capacity to live with a more open hand. Does that make sense? I like to imagine that Job has become a bit more mellow, a bit less tightly wound about the letter of the law. Maybe he's let his hair grow out, you know? Maybe he's given up on the perfectly manicured, perfectly curated life, and he's made a little bit more space for some mess, for some mystery. I see Job learning that everything he has is not actually his. I see Job learning how to use the phrase, I could be wrong. I see a Job who's learning the rhythms of grace and forgiveness and generosity in fresh and life-giving ways. And that's what can happen in those precious and terrible seasons when everything is stripped away and God somehow shows up and breaks through with more than we could ask for or even imagine. Now, like anything, this opening of our ears and minds takes practice. So in closing, I wanted to take a moment to explore for ourselves the great power of listening to God. I'm going to lead us through a very short listening prayer exercise. And this might be a new experience for some of you. It might put you a little step outside of your comfort zone. But I'm asking you to try. You don't even have to get up. All you have to do is close your eyes. And I'm going to um, ask you to imagine some things. I'm going to ask you to let God paint on that canvas of your imagination. Uh, And what's going to happen is you're going to have something come into your mind and you're going to start second guessing. Was that God or did I make that up? I'm here to tell you that we hear God the most clearly in that very moment between asking to hear from God and starting to doubt God's voice. 
Does that make sense? We hear God the most right after we've asked God to speak to us and right before we start doubting that God is speaking to us. So let God speak to you. If something feels confusing, ask God for more. Uh, this is a dialogue. This is kind of what we're going for. So um, let's pray together. Go ahead and close your eyes and I'll guide us. Lord God, we quiet our hearts. We want to hear from you. We trust you. We know that your desire is to come to us, to reveal yourself. We know that you come with love and only love. So we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Okay, first, with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine that you're holding in your hands your very own list of your top 10 concerns in life right now. The top 10 things you're struggling with or worried about or concerned by. What does that list look like? The list that you would have God see of all the things you want to talk to him about. Feel it in your hands. What's the list written on? How is it written? What are the top two or three items on that list? Okay, now I want you to imagine a safe place where you might feel comfortable sharing that list with God. It could be real, it could be made up, it could be a place from your past. Imagine a safe place. What does it look like? How do you feel when you're there? Where are you in the space? Look around, notice the details. Now I want you to imagine God coming to you in that space. I want you to think about how would God come He may come as God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. He may come in an entirely different way. Scripture describes Jesus as a lion, as a lamb. How would God come to you? Where is God in the space? What expression do you see on God's face? Now I want you to imagine that God is holding in his hands his very own top 10 list of things for you, his concerns for you, his cares for you, his priorities for you, all the ways he wants you to come to know more of of who God is. What does this look like? What does the list look like in God's hands as he's holding it? How do you feel knowing that he's looking at that list? Now I want you to picture God handing that list to you as a gift, directly from God to you. What does his face look like as he hands it to you? What does that list feel like in your hands? What would God say to you?
Lord, all we know is that we don't know much. But we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you for your real, life-changing, and personal presence with us. Amen. I want to invite you to jot some notes down, if you can, about some of the things that you saw. Sometimes it doesn't make sense right away, and you might be thinking about it later on, and uh, it might click in. I'd also invite you to share what you imagined with someone maybe that you came with today. I would love it if you shared with me what you saw. Uh, this is another interesting way to just engage with God about uh, how God thinks of us, what God thinks of us through the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that our ears and our minds may continue to be open to receive all of the very best of God's wondrous presence, because God is near and God is love. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.